You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, we go live to the White House to speak with Heather Boucher of the Council of Economic Advisers, her take on today's CPI print and the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act. Plus, Alphabet loses its antitrust fight with Epic Games as a federal court jury in California rules Google Play is a monopoly. We'll break down the impact of the antitrust ruling. And space surveillance startup True Anomaly raises $100 million in its latest funding round to ramp up output of its satellite that can track national threats in orbit. We'll discuss with that and so much more throughout this hour. First, let's check in on these markets. And, well, the initial threat over the CPI print just running ever so slightly hot and one particular point in the margin generally has died down and we see a two-tenths of a percent up on the NASDAQ. No great shakes. We're seeing the two-year yield completely flat, having originally just spiked higher. We come back down. We bribe breathe what seems to be a bit of a sigh as people take on board the fact that really CPI is ultimately slowing but still some areas of concern maybe it be rent maybe it be of course the cost of your cars we've got so much to discuss with this inflationary environment core CPI let's get back to it for a moment Ed the data there coming in today basically matching estimates and reinforcing bets that the Federal Reserve will have to keep rates elevated to tame inflation in the longer term but in the here and the now we just try to really understand where we're dialing back on inflation we want to get the view from the White House, Council of Economic Advisers, to be precise. The member is Heather Boucher. You join us now. And look, consumer prices in general, the print came in, well, where the market had seen it. The headline ticked above expectations on the month on month, just ever so slightly. But Heather, what was your read on today's print? Well, certainly, as you noted, the headline was a bit above market expectations. But when you look at the whole report, you see that the pace of inflation, you know, in various parts of the report has been coming down in ways that are really important for consumers. So, for example, the pace of inflation for groceries are slower than they have been in over a year. Um, And, you know, that that is consistent with news that we were talking about right after Thanksgiving, where the price of a Thanksgiving dinner was cheaper this year than it was last year. Um, And as we look forward um, to the 
holiday season, you see that some goods that are going to be important for families, sporting goods or toys or you know things that they might buy for Christmas, like televisions or whatnot, those prices have also, the, the pace has also slowed there as well. So um, so there is some good news for consumers in there. And you know when you look over the last quarter, the annualized rate of headline inflation is about 2.2%. I would say, though, a lot of consumers don't feel it. Now, you've rightly pointed out that consumer sentiment has been picking up in December. It was up about 13%, I think. Inflation expectations, they've been dialing back. But, well, to use on the day that we get yet another word of the year, one word of the year has been this vibe session. And the feeling is that people don't feel great, even though the economy seemingly is going pretty great. What do you say as an administration when that hits hard on a consumer that doesn't feel the way that you're currently talking about this economy right now. Well, let's be very clear. The president has been clear. His economic team has been clear. We understand that high prices have been hard on families and that this has posed challenges. Pocketbook questions are really important. It's one of the reasons why when I looked at this report today, you know, we see actually that wages have now been um, uh, increasing faster than the pace of inflation for seven months now. And we know that it takes some time for things to, you know, kind of for people's perception of what's happening in the economy to, to resonate. We're hopeful that as we see wages continue, um, hopefully to outpace inflation, that'll help people be able to get their, their family budgets back under control. You know, the other thing we see, of course, is for the 80% of workers in the economy that are production and non-supervisory workers, so not the managers, but the production and non-supervisory workers, they have fully recovered their real wages back to where they had been pre-pandemic. So that's certainly good news, but we know that the path to recover from this historic, um, you know, uh, uh, virus-induced recession that we had and all of the challenges that we had getting back up online and the supply chain challenges. So much work went into making things function again in our economy. And hopefully as people go into this holiday season, they'll see that prices are, are that, that the pace is not as high as it was last year. And that'll help with consumer confidence over time. Heather, thank you for your time. It's Ed here in San Francisco. Our technology audience, its workers, just have one very simple question. What specifics, what areas are you seeing the Inflation Reduction Act have a substantive impact in in lowering inflation? In other words, are there any specific data points you can give us that show the IRA has worked? Well, let me just focus on one today. Um, so we saw in today's report on uh, inflation that the price of new cars has fallen for the past two months. And in fact, actually, it's fallen for four out of the last six months. And one of the things that we've been tracking very carefully because of the Inflation Reduction Act is what's been happening with the U.S. auto industry as we've made this his, these historic investments in batteries and in electric vehicles. And of course, we've seen that the number of electric vehicles has been rising, and we see that actually the price of those cars, because there's now more competition, has actually come down. So now the price of an electric vehicle is about within $3,000 yes. of a car. Then that's before the, um, the, the tax credit that families can receive to buy those new electric vehicles. So that's one place where those investments are helping to bring changes for consumers and families while also creating good jobs here in the United States. In that case, Heather, what is the White House's reaction to the news overnight that Ford has cut its production target for the F-150 Lightning by 50 percent for 2024? And what they're saying is they're simply matching their output to what is what they see as being consumer demand. 
Well, I can't comment on that uh, today in, in the details, but you know we are seeing these historic investments. Um, you know, as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act, we are seeing these um, the, this uptick in sales for electric vehicles that we've seen in the past. Of course, you know this is it is challenging to reshape an entire economy to build a new clean, ener clean energy economy. But knowing that the president has done what he could do, working with Congress to be able to make sure that businesses have the support they need to be able to make these investments. That's where our energy has been focused. There is, of course, that tension that ultimately inflationary pressure hasn't been helped by geopolitics, by trade in particular, by the fact that we are having to slow, in some ways, the supply chain between the US and China in particular. How much of a help or a hindrance is that, particularly at the moment when we think of what's happening in the chip sector? Well, let me just say a couple of things. You know, when you look at the pace of inflation, and um, if you were to overlay um, price changes along with changes in what has happened in uh, the, the, the supply chain index that we look to, you actually see that a big part of why we've been able to get prices down, you know, right, they were um, at their peak 9.1%, now we're at 3.1% for headline inflation. You know, when you look at that shift, a lot of that mirrors these um, challenges that we saw in supply chains as an outcome of the pandemic. Um, and as businesses had to get up and running, and yet there was still this virus around the world and it upended these global supply chains, all the work that the president did to make sure that goods were able to be transported, to make sure that the ports were working, that played a key role in, um, in where we are today and getting prices down. And of course, global trade is a really important part of those global supply chains. Heather, in the technology industry, there are still companies that are reducing headcount. And at the same time, AI is driving a number of postings which seems to be adding to, to wage inflation because, frankly, the numbers are astronomical on offer to hire the best talent in AI. Does the White House have any data that shows an AI impact on the labor force and indeed the economy right now? Well, at this moment, this technology is new, so I can't. I, we don't have like a specific estimate, but I can tell you a couple of things. I mean, first, this is an issue that the president takes seriously. In fact, I believe today um, his AI council is meeting and they're having conversations about uh, about uh, these technologies. But you know, one of the things that we've seen in past instances where we've seen new technologies is that people's jobs tend to change and it works its way as it works its way through the system. So we expect that you know, as these new technologies come online. That'll shift the composition of skills that workers need and how they're, they're performing on the job. But just know that this is something that the administration is certainly focused on, um, as it, the president is so focused on making sure that we're building an economy from the middle out and bottom up and prioritizing workers in our economic agenda. Heather Balshi, the White House Council of Economic Advisors, thank you very much. Uh, coming up, Google loses its antitrust court fight with Fortnite maker Epic Games. We'll discuss what that all means for the $200 billion per year app store industry. That's next. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works – 
across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Google Play deliberately wields monopoly power. That's what a federal court jury found yesterday after liberating less than four hours following a month-long trial in San Francisco. The court fight was with Fortnite maker Epic Games, which had accused both Google and Apple of being a duopoly in the app distribution marketplace and enriching themselves by charging developers excessively high fees to list games. And Epic, reminder, actually lost its challenge to Apple two years ago, the Supreme Court reviewing that one. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Mark Gurman and Leah Nyland to break this all down. Outline the logic of these nine jurors in San Francisco, Leah. What was it that they decided on and why? Yeah, so they found that Google wields monopoly power in the market for app stores and that it engaged in anti-competitive conduct by paying different people, including gaming companies and smartphone makers, to make uh, the Google Play Store the sole app store on various Android phones. And so it's a little bit different than in the Apple App Store. You know, in the Apple case, you know, Apple does not allow any other um, app stores on the phone, and that's long been its policy. In Google, you know, there were all of these payments, some worth a significant amount of money. They were paying Samsung as much as $8 billion over four years to ensure that the Google Play Store really was the, the best and most accessible access point for uh, people using the Android phone. So, I mean, those payments are really what people think convince this jury that, um, you know, Google is a monopoly, whereas in the Apple case, they didn't really have any of that type of evidence. To that end, though, Mark, the read across is clear. And already, actually, we've seen both Alphabet and Apple having to think about the business model and ultimately, ultimately how it evolves. Does it change from here on out on the back of this ruling? Oh, I certainly think so. So there was one remaining point in the Apple case uh, with Epic Games, and that's heading to the Supreme Court likely in a few months now. Uh, And that is steering, right? The ability for any app in the App Store to point a user to the web to complete a transaction. That means the user wouldn't have to use Apple's billing system, therefore saving the developer between 15 and 30% off the top in terms of that Apple revenue share. And now that this jury sided with Google, potentially that puts this idea in the heads of the 
decision makers, the lawmakers on this last point to side with Epic Games and against Apple uh, in this case. But there's a couple things that I, I want to outline here. I think uh, um, Leia is completely right. I think this came down to optics, PR, and those side agreements that Google had with Spotify, Google, and other players to really promote the Google Play Store. For those unfamiliar, there's a fundamental difference between how app stores work on iOS, the iPhone platform, and Android, the Google platform. Android devices have supported sideloading, third-party app stores, the installation of apps from outside Google Play from the beginning, right? So the idea here is that Google doesn't necessarily have a monopoly on app stores. Google has a monopoly on Android smartphones, right? They have this ownership over the smartphones. They're paying, like Leia said, Google to promote Google Play over a Samsung app store, right? They're pushing users towards the Google Play store, right? So that's really the fundamental issue here. And in terms of how things are going to change, Google, they're probably going to have to allow third-party billing platforms globally, or at least in the U.S. because of this lawsuit, and in Europe because of the Digital Markets Act in the European Union, they're going to have to stop those side deals. So you're going to see uh, a lot more flattening and potentially more third-party app stores gaining traction on Android. And on the Apple side, outside of the U.S., in the European Union, you're likely to see the same thing kick off in March. Well, we're going to wait for the new year, but for now, it looks as though the businesses are going to have to realign somewhat. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, great breakdown there. Leon Island, as always, we thank you so much for the expertise. Okay, time for talking tech. First up, Sam Altman is back on the conference circuit and touting AI's benefits to humanity. In his first public appearance since Altman regained control of OpenAI, the CEO appeared at a forum hosted by Operation Hope to discuss AI's advances. He announced that he and John Hope Bryant, the founder of the Hope organization, will co-chair a new AI ethics council based out of Atlanta. Plus, the world's most valuable chip maker, NVIDIA, has become one of the leading investors in AI companies. That's according to estimates by DealRoom. The chip maker participated in 35 deals this year, almost six times more than last year, making NVIDIA the most active large-scale investor in AI in what was a banner year for deal-making in the sector. And speaking of NVIDIA, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says the U.S. is looking into the specifics of three new AI accelerators that the company is developing for China. The announcement comes after vowing earlier this month to restrict any new chips that give that country AI capabilities. Caroline. And let's stick on that one with the Commerce Secretary, Ramando, because also she's warning that US efforts to build out the domestic semiconductor industry could be delayed by years if companies are required to go through standard environmental reviews. Joining us now is someone who knows the space very well, Ben Glicklish. He's the CEO of Element Solutions, which produces chemicals in almost every EV, but also in smartphones, computers, and you develop the next generation chemicals that are going to enable tech advancements. And Ben, to that end, how much is there a local domestic supply chain issue from an environmental perspective as well? Yeah, so there's been a significant ramp in investment in semiconductor capability in North America, but it's it's a muscle that we haven't flexed in a long time. And so we are bumping, we are seeing the supply chain bump into some issues getting capacity online, but we're confident that it will come online and uh, there's a real need and capital behind it. There's just an absolute obsession with GPUs. H100, AMD's out of MI300X. Less discussion about the infinite list of other chips and the raw materials needed 
to support that infrastructure build out. What is life like for you? Are you through the, the chaos of 2020, 2021, where there was a real chip crunch industry wide? Yeah, so the semiconductor industry has been through real volatility in the past several years. There weren't enough chips, and then there was a big stockpile, and so demand softened and capacity uh, additions were slowed down. It's been a roller coaster. We're fortunate to see demand recovering, semiconductor fab utilization increasing, and our business is very well poised to benefit from that. From an element solutions perspective, we sell very small quantities of critical materials, process chemistries that are used in the fabrication of semiconductors and printed circuit boards and the assembly of electronics hardware. Fortunately for us, we have ample capacity to meet the increasing demand that we expect next year and for many years in the future. You touch so many end markets, smartphones, electric vehicles. Are you so far kind of upstream that you don't have the sensitivity to, to pressures on the end market or are you recognizing some pain in the consumer? So our business is unit driven, right? And we've been uh, living through a very significant drawdown, one of the largest drawdowns in the smartphone market in its history, similarly in the semiconductor market. Uh, the automotive market was soft for a period back a few years ago. Uh, we're starting to see that recover. What's great for our business is that we're driven not just by units, but content per unit. And as cars become computers, as computing power proliferates, and as the technical requirements associated with that computing power uh, become more challenging, that's a, a gain for us in terms of our volume and value in each unit and the margin opportunity associated with it. How much of a straight line is that? inevitable move towards EVs, for example. We just had Heather Boucher on, of course, from the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and we were putting to her like some of the concerns surrounding the fact that the Ford Lightning, for example, the F-150 has been cut back, the 2024 production has been cut back, and, and indeed in half. Is it that we will be bumpy in the road towards the shift toward EVs? What is it that you see as a key blocker here? Sure. If you think back three years ago, the rate of penetration of electric vehicles to the global automotive fleet wouldn't, would have paled in comparison to what we've actually seen, right? So automotive electrification has accelerated relative to prior expectations, and surely there will be bumps in the road as large companies uh, grapple with changing supply chains, but the trend is there. You know, it's not a straight line. There's volatility around that line, but the trend is very positive, and for Element, you know, we have really differentiated capabilities that are enabling the high-performance electric vehicles you see on the road today. And we get about one and a half to two times the value on uh, an electric vehicle versus a comparable internal combustion car. So we're excited by that increasing penetration, and we see a lot of opportunity associated with it. The opportunity being, I'm sure, market capitalization boosting. How are you seeing your investor base change, Ben? Our investor base uh, is solid, sturdy, and uh, very compelled by the opportunities we have in front of this company and the way we've been deploying capital in support of it. Now, we are seeing more energy and attention uh, towards our company from electrification, from uh, innovation in uh, high-end electronics. We talked about AI, or you were talking about AI earlier, um, and the proliferation of computing power to the edge of the network. Those technical challenges uh, are, are ripe for us to benefit from and enable. 
Ben Glickler, Shevelement Solutions. Good to catch up. Of course, AI has been all we've been talking about for 2023. Back in 2022, it was all about crypto. And we're still kind of all talking around the holiday table as it seems to have been a bit on a run, at least Bitcoin. We want to dig into that with Kristen Smith, CEO of Blockchain Association, because really all eyes have been on the price of Bitcoin, but also and also a lot of altcoins as well. Exuberance seems to have been cautiously creeping back. Whether or not that's fundamentally driven on the Federal Reserve and inflation, but actually idiosyncratic views that we might have more institutional interest from spot Bitcoin ETF. Is that really what's dictating trade for you? I think there's a combination of factors. I think obviously the Bitcoin ETF, there's a tremendous amount of excitement around that. Uh, you know, as you recall, a couple of months ago, Grayscale had a huge victory in the court that has basically more or less forcing the SEC to consider these applications more seriously. The next big sort of Deadline for when the SEC uh, might make some move around that is in early January, though it really could happen anytime. Um, but we're hearing that a lot of different applicants are having very productive conversations with the SEC. And so there is a lot of hope and optimism that we'll get something like that done. I do think, though, also that, uh, you know, as you were saying, 2023 was not the great year for crypto, and 2023 is almost over. I think there is this real sense that, um, you know, that the, the bad actors within the crypto industry have have been weeded out and what's left is really the focus on what the technology can do. And so we're seeing a lot of optimism, not just around Bitcoin from institutional investors, but sort of returning to the technology of crypto, what it can do and how it can improve not just finance, um, but uh, you know the way that we interact on the internet. So yeah. very excited for 2024. We do end up, rather than talking about blockchain and the underlying technology, we talk a lot about the trading of the assets. And, and just to go back to Bitcoin in and of itself, ETF, are you having discussions with members of your association as to just how quickly that can actually be enacted? Say the SEC goes, go for it, you're allowed. How many days, weeks, months is it until you can actually start? Yeah, I think that's a little bit unclear. I think a lot of it is actually going to depend on the SEC and how quickly they move. I know that most of the applicants can turn these around pretty quickly. They have the the infrastructure in place to do so. It's really getting, getting the sign off. And so I do think that is going to be something to look for, you know, hopefully when the SEC uh, makes this announcement. At the fourth Republican presidential debate, they talked about crypto, thought that was interesting. Yes, yes. 2024 is ahead. Yeah, it seems like if 2023, the bad actors have been weeded out, 2024, the congressional legislatory actors might come in and do something for your industry. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the politics around crypto are shifting more in favor of the technology. As you mentioned, we have uh, presidential candidates that actually had a debate in New Hampshire on this issue uh, just last night, but it also came up in the Republican debate with a question with for uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis. Uh, but we're also seeing congressional candidates include crypto positions in their policy platforms. And I think with the next election, we're going to see more candidates who are elected to Congress who have a better understanding of this technology and why it's important for the United States to be uh, competitive with this. And so I think as we get closer to the election, I think the tide is going to turn. Certainly doesn't mean we don't have those in Congress right now that are not excited about crypto. Um, That is natural to have, you know, folks on both sides of the issue. But I think increasingly the trend is in favor of the the technology and the community and the ecosystem. And so I think 2024 is really going to be sort of a turnaround around year um, for the crypto industry and, and we're very excited about that. 
Kristen, does the Blockchain Association have a scenario for like each potential outcome? So if Biden is or is not re-elected or there is a new administration in the White House, do you see different avenues or paths forward for your industry? Yeah, well, I think there, there are a couple of key factors. I mean, a, a lot of personnel is policy. And so the people who are appointed or um, nominated, I should say, and then confirmed by the Senate to run the independent agencies like the SEC and the CFTC have an incredibly important role to play. And so I think, um, you know, whether it's Biden or somebody else, um, um, you know, Gary Gunsler's not going to be at the SEC forever, and so we will see some changes at some point. And so figuring out who those people are going to be is incredibly important. But, you know, we're also looking at Congress. I think, you know, if the Senate flips, that could have a huge impact. If the House flips, that could have a huge impact. So, yeah, we do a lot of scenario planning. But I think the most important thing that we're focused on right now at the Blockchain Association is really getting the education uh, across to policymakers. Like, this is an incredibly complex space. It's not something that you can talk talk about in one conversation and have everybody understand what the technology can do and what the issues are. And so, you know, regardless of whether Republicans or Democrats are in control of the White House um, or Congress, I think there's a pathway forward to having, um, you know, sort of reasonable, successful policy. And, and um, the core, the key to that is having the right, the right kind of education. And that, that's where we're doing a lot of our focus in 2024. Well, how hard is that education made when one of the most powerful executives, and certainly in banking, Jamie Dimon's says he'd shut it down if he was in power when it comes to Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see Jamie Dimon on the same side as Elizabeth Warren. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is supposed to be against the big banks, and it's very clear they're in cahoots. So I think the fact that he said that is, is, uh, raises eyebrows among um, you know, certain folks that don't know a lot about this space because it seems sort of counterintuitive to have those two that are on the same side on this front. And so, you know, I think, um, I think it actually is a start conversation starter and allows us to come in and talk about this because, you know, half of it is, um, you know, getting the attention, uh, you know, of the policymakers, and, and this is certainly an opportunity for that. Certainly caused a few headlines, that one. Blockchain Association CEO Kristen Smith, always great to have you on to reflect on the industry. All right, coming up on the program, there's a new satellite in town, well, in space, that can track national threats in orbit. We're going to talk with Evan Rogers, CEO of the startup True Anomaly. That's up next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. 
They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Time now for our VC Roundup. General Atlantic, the investment firm whose bets have included Facebook, now Meta, Airbnb, but has confidentially filed for an IPO itself, according to sources. The firm is considering listing as soon as next year, depending on those market conditions. Meanwhile, Changshin Memory Technologies is delaying its own IPO and will instead consider raising funds privately at about a $19.5 billion valuation. It's the latest Chinese company to call off a debut because of volatile market conditions. Meanwhile, Essential AI. It's an AI startup founded by two authors of a seminal research paper over at Google. It's raised $56.5 million in new funding led by March Capital. The company will use AI for corporate functions like data analysis and automating pretty monotonous tasks. Ed. All right, let's head out to space. True Anomaly, a U.S. startup designing military and intelligence space reconnaissance systems, raised $100 million from investors to ramp up its output of a satellite that can track national threats in orbit. Riot Ventures led the Series B round with participation from Eclipse Ventures, Acme Capital, and Menlo Ventures. Joining us now, delighted to say, is True Anomaly CEO and co-founder Evan Rogers. Let's start with Jackal, the AOV but the system more broadly. Explain the technology to us. Yeah, thank you, Ed. So Jackal is what we call an autonomous orbital vehicle designed to fly in close proximity safely to other satellites. It has its own onboard propulsion capability that's a chemical system and is equipped with five different cameras that allow us to maneuver safely and image other satellites at a high resolution, uh, pretty much in any orbital lighting conditions, whether it's an eclipse or whether it's fully lit by the sun. Um, it's designed at a cost point that allows these systems to be proliferated at a scale that's so far been unachievable by the by the defense industrial base that's been supporting the Space Force and the intelligence community to date. So if I'm the U.S. government or I'm Space Force, how do I get access to Jackal? How do I use it? And what are the threats in orbit that I'm trying to gather data on? Well, the, the Space Force is thinking about transacting with the private sector in a variety of ways. We ultimately want to want to transact at, with the DOD in a way that allows us to align incentives so the True Anomaly can assume some of the technical risk that allows us to target margins that are interesting to particularly defense investors um, for future rounds. The Space Force hasn't made it very, very clear what they intend to to transact on a typical firm fixed price contract where we're delivering the satellite for commercial operations or for government operations. The Space Force is working on a strategy to date to think through that, and, and we hope to be uh, part of the conversation there. One partnership you do have is you're going to ride on SpaceX at some sure. point next year on your first mission. What's that experience like working with SpaceX in the rideshare context to get out to orbit? SpaceX has been an absolutely fantastic partner. Um, you know, the, the reality is that SpaceX has 
provided launch at a cost where companies like True Anomaly can get ready access to space at a price point that doesn't doesn't break the bank. Ten years ago, a company like True Anomaly couldn't exist because an ecosystem of capabilities and infrastructure and subsystems didn't exist for, for True Anomaly to have access to a supply chain that really has been matured by low-cost launch. We're working with SpaceX and indeed, well, the U.S. government. What does the U.S. government as an institution like to deal with? <laughs> That's a great question, Caroline. It, it's, a, it's a complicated relationship. Uh, the DOD really has responded very positively to what True Anomaly is building. You know, this company was founded by four co-founders that spent 10 years each in the United States Space Force and the Air Force as, a spa as space operations officers. We saw the transition of the DOD thinking about the space domain as a peacetime domain to thinking about it as a warfighting domain. And what we recognized is that that required a new defense industrial partner explicitly focused and purpose-built for thinking about protecting the infrastructure that, that is in space that we've spent hundreds of billions of dollars as the United States and allies fielding, and that really is the backbone of global commerce and intelligence. So they've responded very positively, and, and at the end of the day, it's incumbent on True Anomaly to demonstrate that we can actually build and fly safely the systems that we have designed. And so really, this unnerving sort of future that you paint of war and space, is that what it ends up looking like? It's a protection of one's assets out there rather than it becoming some ultimate sort of war zone that immediately makes one kind of go to Hollywood in one's mind's eye at least. Yeah, science fiction is a sort of a complicated set of imaginaries around this and isn't always useful. The, the truth is that our adversaries have spent the last 20 years building an arsenal of counterspace weapons designed to target and destroy satellites. And that puts the United States and its allies' ability to project power globally significantly at risk. And these weapons are, are really conventional weapons, everything from missiles that are designed to be launched from the surface of the Earth to satellites that are designed to attack other satellites. Nobody wants a conflict that extends into space. If we have to fight that conflict, it needs to be done in a way that ultimately doesn't generate debris that prevents the access to space for future generations. So we can't, in other words, have a Pyrrhic victory, what General Saltzman, who's the chief of space operations, calls a Pyrrhic victory. The ideal outcome is deterrence, where we have an infrastructure in the space domain, the ability to gather information about what our adversaries are doing, to hold them accountable so that we, we can hold them accountable on the public stage, understand yes. the next generation of systems that need to be built, and ultimately deter. Evan, this was a very oversubscribed round, $100 million Series B. I know you're yet to reach unicorn status, but what will you use the cash for? How do you grow this year? Yeah, we're really focused on delivering against the contracts that we, we've signed to date. We've had pretty exceptional revenue and orders traction. We have some really exciting announcements that will come out in the next couple of months around that. Um, I'm focused on investing in the team and delivering the product and scaling production. All right, True Anomaly CEO and co-founder Evan Rogers. Cool sign jolly, I'm told, from his That's time right. in the Space Force. Thank you for your time here on Bloomberg Technology. Let's get back to talking space, Ed, because missions are always physically taxing for astronauts. But those months, long trips away from friends, from family, they can also take a really heavy emotional and mental toll on one's well-being. That's why HTC Vive and its partners have sent the first virtual reality headset for mental health usage to the International Space Station. The headset is currently being used by Danish astronaut Andreas Mogensen. Here to tell us a little bit more about bridging the gap between the science and mental health is Dan O'Brien, who's HTC Vive President of the Americas. And Dan, what is 
complex? What is difficult about sending such equipment to, sit, to space? Well, it, it's actually very challenging. Uh, one, we use gravity uh, for pretty much all of our technology uh, on the ground. And uh, in space, we actually had to account for zero gravity and actually have a point of reference so that we don't have things like drifting away inside of a, a space station. So just the technological um, achievement to actually send something into space like this uh, was pretty amazing. But it's also, again, just like you said on the mental health side, the rigors of space is actually pretty isolating, um, very distracting, uh, and it's very challenging for the astronauts. Um, they're dealing with stress in minutes you know, of what we deal with, kind of in hours or weeks um, or years. So it's a very high stress environment, so we wanted to actually put this product up there so that we could measure how we can make it a, uh, a more uh, efficient and proactive uh, environment for our astronauts. Dan, I've spent many more hours this year using virtual mixed augmented reality with my feet firmly planted on the ground and earth. I'm sure you have as well. Yes. But, but, uh, are there differences from the experience the astronauts go through of, of a, a virtual reality environment in zero gravity? What, what have they relayed to you? Um, I think you can look at, they're doing a lot of video uh, uh, experiences as opposed to something that you might be just walking around and experiencing. Um, but you can see here, they actually do a lot of on-ground training. So here, uh, the commander you know, in that video was actually doing all of the spacewalk um, experiences and training before he went into that environment. So what we do on Earth is the ability to actually do a lot of training, simulation uh, with our healthcare applications, uh, a lot of high stress training. Uh, that we can use across a lot of verticals, not just for NASA, but for uh, first responders, healthcare, um, defense, um, and education. So we actually have a lot of ways that we can use it on Earth that we can't use it in the space station, but we can actually bring those uh, astronauts a lot of experiences um, that will just bring them a lot of calm and serene that they can use inside of that environment. Dan, what's HTC getting out of sending a headset up to zero gravity environments? <laughs> Well, I think there's, there's a lot for us to always learn. We're an innovation company that delves into hardware and software, and we have been delivering new technology for the industry for many years. We were the first company to bring you a 4G LTE device or a touchscreen device uh, with our smartphones, uh, and then we were the first company to bring you things like a, a full room scale walking around virtual environment. So for us, it's always about being the innovation leader in every aspect, um, and what we're learning now in space and being able to actually have an object in space. Um, it teaches us a lot about different environments that we can actually bring a virtual scenario to, but it's also about that training and simulation. We can actually do a lot in that space station with our headset and our technology. Leader doesn't always mean winner. And when we think of VR, AR, certainly for this year, one goes to Meta, then one goes to at least the announcement coming from Apple. Sure. Do you feel that market share will ultimately be yours by being a leader too? Well, there's always, it's always good to be first, right? But at the same time, we are the reference design for so many of those other companies. Um, they usually follow us about a year behind us, whether it comes to wireless connectivity and technology. But even looking at Apple, like their headset that they're going to announce is already behind what is actually coming out. Um, when we look at Meta, they have a different, completely different business model. You know, they're looking at the user is the product. Um, they're looking at, you know, selling ads in the metaverse. We're a company that actually stands for technology, innovation, humanity. So what we're actually trying to accomplish with our brand and our technology is actually bringing products and solutions that will actually benefit humanity and our users, whether they're consumers or commercial users.
cutting mm. face of Meta. We thank you for that, Dan O'Brien, really talking about the marketing landscape and indeed more broadly the landscape for ARVR. He's, of course, HTC Vive president of the Americas. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. There's been a lot about space, Ed, as always. 50% in orbit, 50% on Earth. There's a lot to recap. Thank you to everyone that's listening to the podcast, wherever you're getting your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and we post them every day on all of the Bloomberg platforms. Really, really appreciate the feedback on that one. From San Francisco and out in New York City, here on planet Earth, this is Bloomberg Technology. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.